song already play? The song played. See, I was talking. I'm sorry. I'm such a social butterfly. Uh, well, good morning. Again, we are in Daniel. Uh, we are in part two of our series, Into the Lion's Den, a study of Daniel. I titled that. You're welcome. I know, sounds great. Kind of like a thesis, but uh, for a level of education I never want to get because school's awful. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, got a master's done. I do want people to call me Master Huff, right? If they get to, if they call people doctor, why shouldn't, you know, I think it makes sense. You could be doctor, I'll be master, you know? No? That probably wouldn't go over real well. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So last week in our series to begin studying Daniel, we talked about remaining faithful in spite of being in a fearful situation, which to me means that as followers of God, we continue to believe in the goodness of God despite going through things that don't feel good, right? That is what being faithful in spite of fear is all about. Knowing that as Romans 8.28 tells us, God works together all things for our good, right? Specifically, it says, for the good of those who love him. So as faithful believers of God, we can believe that he is doing good things in our life, even when, again, I say things don't necessarily feel good. And that promise is really a promise that faithful believers will come out better for their trials. That is one of the magnificent things about our God. One of the most powerful things about our God is that he can take us through situations that he necessarily didn't have anything to do with, right? Things that are in our lives we would consider trials and tribulation and, and, and bad, and he can bring about good through that. He can make us better, more complete, more whole Christians and human beings because he is God. It is actually a gift that he gives to us. Even death brings about the beginnings of eternal life, right? God is that good. He is all-powerful. Amen? Amen. So today we're going to be talking about the goodness of God and the reward of faith as seen in the story of Daniel. And I want to start where we ended last week with verses 15 and 16 in chapter 1, which say, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. So just quick recap for anybody who maybe isn't real familiar, but hopefully everyone is. Last week, we talked about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's the name we know them best by. They were captives, right, in Babylon. And as part of this, they were put into this program by the king where they were to be fed specific food. But this food went against the law of God. It went against dietary restrictions for their people. And so they refused kindly. They challenged, really, that, that command and said, hey, for 10 days, give us vegetables, give us water. We're not going to eat food from the king's table, then at the end of those 10 days, compare our status with the others who are eating what you're feeding them. And if we're worse off than they are, we're going to eat what you tell us to. But if we're not, then, I mean, respect the game, right? Like, let us continue with the vegetables and water. And so what we just read there is we saw at the end of the 10 days, they were fatter. How you get fatter on vegetables, I don't know. I think you deep fry them, right? That's the only way I mean vegetables anyways. You just batter those bad boys up, hot oil, they're crunchy, and then you can dip them in some like ranch and they're almost not vegetables, you know, it's real good. Otherwise we should just, I agree, like let's just eat steak. And I mean, if you want wine, fine, but I'll just steak, like double it up, you know, protein only uh, diet. I'm all about that life, but it was successful for them. They ended up fatter. They were drinking water and eating vegetables and they ended up in better shape. And so 
they were able, they were honored by God to be able to continue to eat what was good for them. Well, we're going to pick up today in verse 17, which states, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And so it was almost like, here's the reward for their faith, right? You stood up for my teaching. You stood up for what I told you is right. And because you stood up for what I told you was right, you are going to flourish. I'm going to give you what it is that you need in order to be successful. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to prepare these men for positions of responsibility, but their success came because they were being prepared by God. And I think that that's an important lesson for all of us to learn because there's all sorts of things we can do in this world to educate ourselves on various things things, all kinds of things. I am what I like to call a YouTube mechanic. Okay. I know nothing naturally about cars, but if there is a video on YouTube that can walk me through a repair, I so far to this point in time have a hundred percent success rate in repairing things. No tires have fallen off. No engines have exploded. We have yet to die. Uh, I always test everything before the girls get in the car, right? Just to be safe. But like, I'm a YouTube mechanic. There's lots of things you can find that are educational and purpose that can prepare you for all sorts of things. And you can go out and you can seek an education and all of those things are good. I'm not, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But when we talk about being successful in life, about having successful outcomes through trials and through tribulation, that doesn't come because of the education that we have necessarily sought out from outside sources. It comes from being educated by God. It comes from being prepared by God. And a lot of times, the way that God prepares us is through trials such as these. And they found success not because of everything they were being taught by the king's court, but because of the lessons that were imparted to them by a good and loving God. They were in an extremely tough situation where the wrong word or the wrong decision could lead to an ungodly outcome. God gave them knowledge. And what that means to us is a couple things. They were able to reason. They were able to think clearly and logically. We talked about how that 10-day trial that they proposed to the eunuch, right, who was in charge of their care, was actually pretty smart. It was logically intelligent. It was also faithful. And how faith and logic don't have to be separate this is one of their gifts from God to be able to think logically through situations and come and arise to solid outcomes. They were able to discern their current climate, right? They were able to read the room. You ever been around somebody who couldn't read the room? Who like comes in and it's like they're cracking jokes and uh, just being highly inappropriate. And you're like, dude, Jerry's dad just died. Like, chill out. Like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, I didn't know. I mean, uh, I mean, he was crying. You guys are all crying, but I didn't know, right? Like, just read the room. Like, use your eyes. Feel some emotion every now and then. Like, be able to see what's going on. Teenage boys, they don't read the room. It's not a gift that we come by naturally, right? We come in and we, like, knock the china cabinet over and are causing all sorts of destruction. And it's like, I just lost my job. Will you relax? Like, I can't pay for this thing. So be able to read the room. That's something that they were given, a gift that came directly from God. And while there were others in Babylon that had these gifts who were educated well, Daniel, we're told, was set apart even from the other three, and that he was given a gift that made him superior to the rest. He was able to interpret visions and dreams. 
Anybody out there a dreamer, like a vivid dreamer, like you have dreams and you remember those dreams? A couple of you. You guys are weird. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think I dream, but every now and then I'll remember one, and I'm like, man, I'm glad I don't like remember dreams very often because I don't know why I was half ostrich and jumped off a cliff, but I would really love to know what that means, right? Daniel would have been able to tell me. He would have been able to tell me. He would have been able to explain everything and be like, I don't know, you're a flightless bird. Shut up, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, right? But Daniel was given this gift, and these gifts of God culminated into something greater for the four. It wasn't just that they had knowledge. It's what that knowledge was able to do for them. Let's continue to read. Daniel chapter 1, 18 and 19. It says, At the end of this time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none were like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as you know, they were all renamed, right? Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says, therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and encanters that were in all of his kingdom. Right? So they're coming, and it's like pop quiz time. Nebuchadnezzar's like firing off questions. What would you do with this scenario? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Just going, and they're answering. They're providing wise answers. And he's seeing these answers. He's like, man, these, these are like some really wise individuals. Are these Babylonians? And the eunuchs are like, no, captain, right? Those are the Israelites, the Babylonians. Those are the dumb ones. And so he's sitting there. He's like, man, I've got all these magicians and all these encanters and all these people who are supposed to be fortune tellers and be able to tell me all these things. And they're like nothing compared to these dudes. Because the wisdom of man cannot compare to the wisdom of God. There's no battle there. The wisdom of God is always better than the wisdom of man. And I've told you this times before. I'll tell you this again. I've lived my life in two ways. I have lived my life very much so in a time as if God did not exist. Wholly reliant and dependent on myself. And I have also lived as if God is living, as if his word is true, as if the sacrifice of Christ is real. And this is my greatest testimony, and that I can tell you in living those two different ways, I have been happier, I have been wiser, I have been better, I have been more pleasant to be around, I have just been overall a human being that I am slightly just a little bit proud of when I live as if God is a real and living God. When I live as if there are consequences for my actions, when I live as if I don't have all the answers. The wisdom of God is always better than the wisdom of man. And Nebuchadnezzar is getting that lesson. But here's the lesson we receive from this. God does not give you what you need to survive. He gives you what you need to thrive. And those are two different things. Remember, we talked about, I made up a new word not too long ago, whatever series that was, thrival. There's survival and then there's thrival. Like we're wanting to thrive. We're not wanting to just survive. That's what the gifts of God allow us to do. They allow us to thrive. But here's the thing. Thriving requires us to often change our mindset because what the world says is thriving, what even we may sometimes think is thriving, isn't always what thriving is. 
The argument could be, well, thriving for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be to not be in captivity, right? That would be thriving for them to be at home, for them to be not in the Babylonian court. That would be thriving. But here's the honest truth. That wasn't going to happen. These were natural consequences of a nation's actions, and they were in captivity because, if I'm being frank, they kind of deserved it. At the very least, there's nothing that we could say to say, oh, they didn't deserve that. Does that make sense? So what does thriving look like for them? It means that instead of being out of captivity, they were given everything they needed to make the best of their current situation. That is what thriving is. That is what thriving is. It isn't always being high on the hog. It isn't always dancing around in plenty and being able to throw money wherever you want it, right? Sometimes it's only having a few bucks in your bank account before payday, but knowing that you are sheltered and fed and clothed and that everybody in your life is healthy and taken care of, thriving doesn't always look like the mansion and the car and the this and the that. I almost started rapping that out. I don't really know why. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Thriving is more than surviving in that it's not just making it by. It's, it's us recognizing the goodness of God to provide what we have. It's the ability to say, things are tough, but man, I'm blessed. Things are tough, but we're okay. Things are tough, but I know I've made it every time before, and I'm going to make it again. Thriving means being the given, being given the, the, the gifting to thrive in the face of adversity, right? I mean, that, it, it's the ability to say, hey, even though things aren't good, things are going to be okay. They're going to be good. And, and for us to be able to make the best out of situations that would cause others to crumble. And we're able so often to do that because God is on our side. And Daniel would soon face such a situation. And if you ever read uh, the book of Daniel or Daniel's story, but this Nebuchadnezzar guy, not exactly what you would call a level-headed individual. Uh, he's kind of a sociopath, um, a little bit what we would refer to maybe as a psycho, right? So in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he wants that dream interpreted. But he doesn't want to tell anyone what the dream was. This is like, some of you guys, I got a boss just like that, right? Talk about impossible, so he brings all of his wise men, the encanters, the magicians, the fortune tellers, all the, the, the Babylonian wisdom people, and he says, I've had this dream. Tell me what it means. And they say, well, tell us the dream. We'll, we'll tell you what it means. Says, I'm not going to do that. I want you to not only tell me what the dream means, I want you to tell me what the dream was. What was the dream? And they're like, hey, this is impossible. And so they're trying to like buy a little bit of time. And he basically says, hey, you don't tell me what this dream says. You don't tell me what this dream was and what it means. You're a goner. I'm going to cut your head off. I mean, for lack of a better term. And they're trying to buy a little bit of time and smooth talk them a little bit. And like, hey, man, this would be impossible for anybody. Just tell us what the dream was and we will tell you the meaning. Knowing that they couldn't do it that they wouldn't be able to, to do that, 
he, he's like, this isn't going to go well for you. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, 5 and 6. 5 and 6. It says, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, how he refers to these magicians and fortune tellers, right? The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. That sounds painful. And your houses shall be laid to ruins. So not only am I going to rip you limb from limb, I'm going to destroy your homes, which homes in this day meant people, right? Your family, everything you own, where you live, all going to be raised to the ground. Destruction, like not going to be well for you and yours. But then verse six, he says, but if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. And I kind of spoiled it, but we all know how this ends, right? If somebody came to you and was like, hey, I had this dream. Tell me what it means. And you're like, what was the dream? I'm not going to tell you. You'd be like, okay, bye, right? We know how this ends. Verse 12, it says, because the king was very angry and furious, he commanded that all the wise men in Babylon be destroyed. So not so shocking. They weren't successful. And he says all of the wise men to be destroyed, but not just my wise men, any wise men. So you know who is part of the, that group? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel is notified of the king's desire to have all of them killed before it actually comes to fruition. Again, the favor of God. You could say as a reward of his faith. And so he goes before the king and he petitions him, basically. He, he, he approaches the king and he says, hey, bring me back at a later date I will tell you what the dream was. I will tell you what it means. Do it. And I'll give you what you want. Then we get these two verses, 17 and 18 in chapter 2. It says, Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. In the face of certain death, Daniel sought like-minded believers and the intervention of God. That wasn't his last resort. It's not like he tried all the things on his own first in order to come up with some sort of solution. The first thing he did was go to his fellow believers and pray. He went to like-minded individuals. He expressed the problem that he was facing and he asked for them to pray with him. And that's what they did. How many of us is that our first response? How many of us, when we are in the midst of a situation that just is too much for us to bear, think, I'm gonna surround myself with fellow believers and I'm gonna pray? Or how many of us believe the lies of Satan in those situations and think, I should feel shame. I should be able to handle this all on my own. I shouldn't have to bother other people with this. What will they think of me? How will they look at me? What if this changes their amount of respect that they have for me? Brutal honesty time? I'm the second guy. Going through something? automatically embarrassed about it, automatically ashamed. Doesn't matter if it's a result of my own sin or someone else's. 
I just want to hide. I don't want others to know. I don't want to admit that I have weakness. I don't want to admit that I failed God. I don't want to admit that I have somehow gotten myself in a situation that would require me to seek the help of others and to pray to a God that I feel like I've let down. And again, it's as easy to feel like that in situations where your sin caused the outcome as it is to be in a situation like Daniel is where I'm willing to bet based on his character and what we know about him, it wasn't really his actions that led to Israel being held captive. I mean, would you all kind of agree with that? Just based on who Daniel is and what we know about him and the faith that he has in God and his general attitude towards God, I'm thinking that he probably wasn't the cause of the entire nation of Israel being held captive. And yet, it would still be easy for him in those situations to feel like I'm in this situation because God is upset with me. I'm in this situation because of our own actions. And so I should be able to fix it. But his first response is to hit his knees and to pray to the God that he knows is in control. They gathered and they prayed. And don't ever forget the most important part of this example, which is the timing. It was option number one. It was the first thing that they did. The first thing that they did was pray. These are wise men. They are intelligent. They have been gifted with knowledge and logic. Remember, they're able to read the room. God has imparted all of these things to them. We're not talking about four dummies who like don't have a clue. But their first course of action was to pray. It wasn't the last resort. It was the first. And that was the reason they sought extra time. Give us some time that we might pray to an all-knowing God. And as we'll see, and as you might have guessed, Daniel is successful. Never freaking out. Didn't lose his mind. He calmly, with faithful certainty, approached God and experienced what we all experience in times of trouble. Mercy. Mercy. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now today and I thank you for the story of Daniel. I thank you as we continue into chapter two, God, for the lessons that are there and the things that you can teach us through his story. God, we all know what it feels like to be out of control. We all know what it feels like to be in situations that don't feel good, to, to, to wish that things were different, to, to, to just desire wholly different circumstances. But life doesn't work that way. Not always. How miraculous is it that in those times and in those trials and through tribulation, you, God, are bigger than what we face. And not only do you show us mercy, but you give us grace. And you strengthen us. And you teach us. 
and you grow us so that we might be a more complete follower of Christ. At the end of the day, I think what we all want is to mirror the character of Christ, to, to, to mirror the character of Daniel. To in these times, seek you first. And I can't explain to you all the reasons that that doesn't happen for the various individuals in this room. But I know I can't be the only one who doesn't come to you first. I know I can't be the only one that needs improvement in this area. So God, I would ask that you start by giving us a spirit of unwavering fearlessness. that you would not allow us for one second to believe the lies that Satan would have us believe. That you would guide us and strengthen our steps in everything that we do. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the wisdom imparted to us. God, we ask for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stand up. This is the time we get to worship. This is the time we get to, to pour our soul out to God and thank him for all that he has done for us. This is an offering, and you get to give an offering to God right here now in this moment. If your relationship with God is not something that is solidified in your life, I am of the belief that there is no matter in your life more pressing or important than being a follower of Jesus, than making the decision to say, I will follow wherever that may lead me. And if you need to discuss, you need to know, you need to give your life over to Jesus in this moment today, come speak with me. If you need to pray, I'm here to pray with you. You can use our stage as an altar. Go directly to him. But there are others willing and open and ready to pray with you right here, right now, this morning. And I ask that you don't bear your burden alone any longer. Find other like-minded believers and have the courage to be vulnerable enough to step out and say, yeah, I need help because you're not the only one. You're not the only one. Let's worship.